Hello, and thank you for tuning into the show. A quick caveat before you dive in. This was recorded pre-COVID-19. The views, the ideas, the conversation that was shared, the perspectives were all done in a pre-pandemic world. So please listen to the show as there's some fantastic information and some great takeaways. Just know that it was recorded before the pandemic that has ultimately changed all of our lives. Thank you for listening. Keep learning, keep curious, and keep supporting our community. Hello and welcome to Collisions YYC. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Today on the show, I sit down with Mr. Mark Stackew. Mark is the president of Alberta Wind Energy Corporation. Mark and I take a deep dive into the multifaceted world of energy and more specifically on renewables, the role they're playing globally, the role they're playing in Alberta, and how the future from electrification of our vehicle fleets to the low cost barrier that's now coming to market that's making renewables applicable in many ways of life. Join me for an interesting conversation with Mr. Mark Stackew. Well, Mark, I'm sitting here excited about our conversations here. I'm sitting here with Mark Stackow, who's the Alberta Wind Energy Corporation president. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Great to be here. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming in. And I really, I want to get a call out. You reached out to me and you'd heard the show. And I think you, uh, Eric Bennett is someone you know. That's right. And you reached out because you were passionate about the message that you have and you wanted to get on the show to share it. So thanks for taking the initiative. I really, I appreciate it. Yeah, I think it's a great message, renewable energy. And it's one that I think Calgarians need to hear more and more, given what's happened in the oil and gas industry and some of the, I would say, external threats to our industry. Yes, that's we 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 live in a broad. It's a big. It's a global world we live in, and it's sometimes very small at at the, at the same time. When you think of energy, it, you can't just look at okay, this is what's happening in Calgary. We're part of a much bigger picture, and I think renewables is something that I think can have a little bit of a bad stigma in Calgary sometimes. I don't know. It depends who you talk to. So yeah, you've been in renewables for a long time. So maybe just give me your perspective and kind of <clears throat> this, this is your world. You live in it every day. Let's start there. So I've been in renewables for about sixteen years, and it's really interesting in our industry that most of the people that are in it didn't start in renewables because it's such a young industry. Because it wasn't there. Your guidance counselor didn't say you should get into renewables. Exactly. Like really in Canada, the industry maybe started 20 years ago in earnest. So you get a lot of people from oil and gas, from finance, from legal, Uh, myself, my background's in finance, but I kind of fell into renewables, I guess you could say almost by accident. I was in the investment uh, banking industry and uh, helped start up a company ultimately in Vancouver on the small hydro side. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then moved back here to Calgary to help start up Alberta Wind Energy. Interesting. So what does Alberta Wind Energy, that sounds very specific. You talk about renewables, it's more broad. Yeah. You say Alberta Wind Energy, it sounds like you've niched down into one specific, or are you still involved on a more, like, across the board? So we began, obviously, in wind. Um, we are, at the present time, looking at solar, because I think solar eventually is going to overtake wind as far as efficiency and okay. costs. Um, but yeah, we began in, in wind and have built and developed a number of projects in the province. Um, it's been interesting uh, work, uh, especially it's been challenging in Alberta. It's had it's definitely had its up and downs. Okay. Um, uh, just with power prices and the economy and uh, you know, also people's perception and, and government and politics and all those things we can probably talk about. Um, we were actually one of the first companies to do a corporate deal in, in Canada with IKEA Group, the furniture manufacturer. Okay. So we, we 
we developed and built a project for them and eventually sold it to them. Oh, interesting. And, uh, That's right. How long, when was that? I, just, that I, was, hadn't, I hadn't heard of that. Or yeah, does, that does was back in 2014. I okay. guess the project so not, that, not, not that long ago. Not that long ago. Uh, since then, they've actually built uh, and bought another project in the province and uh, have done some other projects across North America. But it's interesting, you, a lot of these larger corporate companies uh, from Europe, um, the US, they, they're actually getting into renewables in a, in a very big way. You know, you take a look at tech companies like Google and Apple. Yes. Yeah. That's interesting. And they're, they, they're getting in it as an energy play, not for, and maybe this is a silly question, but this is not just to de- decrease their own footprint or to power their own operations. This is more as a business <clears throat> initiative. Or, or is it a combination of the two? It's, it's a few things. So a lot of these companies have signed on to the RE100 or Renewable Energy 100. So I think it's up to now 200 companies okay. that have committed to reducing their uh, carbon footprint down to zero within a certain time frame. And it was really initiated by a lot of the tech companies, as I had mentioned. Right. But they've gotten into it um, you know, for a lot of reasons. One is um, basically their corporate commitments – uh, locking in the price of power, um, which okay. you can do with renewables. You can essentially lock in your price of power for the next 20, 30 years. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, I never thought of it that way. So simply from a pure financial strategic perspective of identifying costs and being able to plan out against that, renewables provides a lot more s- uh, sense of security and assurance that way. Absolutely. So, oh, I didn't know that. So tech companies you know, have these large data centers that use a tremendous amount of energy. So if you can lock in the price of power for the next 20 years, um, you know, that you're really hedging yourself against any increases in power prices over that time frame. And now renewable energy is, is to a point where we are the cheapest form of producing an electron. Like it's in the past, you know, renewable energy was seen as very expensive. And right. I guess the message I really want to get out to your listeners and everybody is that renewables is no longer that niche play uh, there's been a tipping point where renewables is now the cheapest form of electric- electricity generation. And that is simply because the cost of technology has caught up, has gone down. Like as they've mass produced this, they become more efficient. The technology that goes into it has become less costly or the output has become has increased or a combination of the both. It's been both. So, okay, yeah. Both yeah. sides of that coin. Exactly. And it would... Where, where where do we sit? Because this is about Calgary, and of course you can't talk about energy and just talk about Calgary. When you think about this on a global stage, are we looking to Europe for thought leadership around this? Is it the U.S.? Who's who's really paving the path? And where, I guess, is there a place where you can look at where the majority of their energy comes from renewable? Or is it still always a combination of traditional hydrocarbons versus uh, renewables? So when you look at wind, um, wind power really got its start in Europe, so... In de- places like Denmark and Holland and Germany, uh, and actually some of the largest uh, wind turbine companies are still located in those countries. Um, so their renewable energy industry kicked off maybe 35, 40 years ago. Okay. I remember even as a kid seeing the, like out, I think it was in the Netherlands or mm-hmm. out in, you know, in, in, in the sea where you actually have these huge wind farms. And I remember seeing that as a kid and just like, it was in this far off land kind of, kind of mindset. Right. I mean, they had the advantage that, well, they had a good resource, but they also had very high power prices. So it made a lot of sense. So they had motivations from a financial perspective. Exactly, yeah. Um, And now in places like Denmark, um, on certain days, 100% of their grid is green from wind. Uh, I think over the course of a year, 
I think it's around 40 or 50 percent of it comes from renewable energy. Um, you know, again, Germany, uh, depending on the day, can be close to 100 percent from renewable energy. Okay. So, from your philosophy, when you you and I talked about this a little bit beforehand, like the word, the concept of energy just in itself, do you do you see this as a blended approach that because the needs of energy consumption are continually rising globally, that it's just we need more players at the table? Like sometimes I feel it's this either or, like for one to succeed, the other must go away, or this very polarizing view that feels a bit unrealistic to me, but it feels very idealistic right. fr- from a media perspective standpoint. So, what are your views on a balanced approach to meeting our energy needs versus this? needs to go away and this needs to take over is what I think the media likes to play around with a lot more. Yeah, you get a lot of that in Calgary um, where somebody talks to you about renewable energy or you talk to somebody about renewable energy and they immediately you know, push back um, because they see it as a threat to our bread and butter in Calgary, yes. which is the oil and gas industry. And the reality is we actually operate in two different markets, at least at the present time. Um, we produce electricity. Electricity is used, you know, in your home for lighting and everything else. And oil and gas is primarily used for transportation and, and other products. Uh, eventually, that there's going to be a convergence there. Um, you know, we can talk about electric vehicles and so forth. Yes, that's, I think that's, that's that's a big thing, and that's certainly something that as a consumer you see. There's lots of buzz about it. It's yeah. you know, everybody knows about Tesla. Knows somebody who has it because if someone has a Tesla, you know, because they're going to tell you they have a Tesla, which right. is okay. <laughs> And so you, you definitely, but I think as the general everyday consumer, you don't always know the complexities of what's going on behind the scenes. You see these kind of sound bites, sound bites almost. Right. And when you have an industry that's being disrupted already because of price, because of access to market, it's easy to look for other villains to blame. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You know, but we are on a movement. Like the world does change. We don't stay the same. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a philosophical barrier as well. Um, okay. Renewable energy in the past has always been seen sort of as a, hippie or left-wing industry, yes, which is really not the case. Um, uh, you, you know, even speaking for myself, uh, I got into the industry not necessarily for an environmental reasons. It okay. was more an economic case that I saw. You were a finance renewable. guy, right? You were a money guy. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, and I think that message really has to get out to the public in Calgary that, you know, we are not battling the oil and gas industry. In fact, self-servingly, I would love to see oil and gas industry thrive because that increases the demand for electricity in the province, which yes. increases okay. for the product that that we make, which um, you know feeds uh, industry and pump jacks and everything. Absolutely, else. it's about every, everything needs power. Like the electrification of our world, so many things run on that. That's right. Yeah. And it seems to be moving. That is, is electrification. Is that also? It clearly seems like a trend moving away from moving to more and more things being powered that way. How is that going to contribute in the long run? Because like that kind of increases the need for power, but it kind of balances out. I'm not sure. Does it decrease the demand for hydrocarbons while simultaneously increasing the demand for power <laughs> and where you're generating it from? <laughs> I think in the medium to long term, we're going to see demand for oil and gas go down. I'm just speaking as my personal opinion. Uh, there's a lot of different forecasts out there. You look at, uh, you know, even OPEC comes out with a forecast on EVs and how it's going to affect demand. And it's actually quite, it's a stark <laughs> uh, forecast where they expect, you know, EVs to really take hold in the next 20 or 30 years and right. demand for oil to go down in the next 20 to 30 years. I mean, when you look back 20 years ago, that's the year 2000. So if we think there's yes. going to be a major change in the demand for oil, uh, I think that's an, a concern for our industry here in Alberta. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, in many parts of the industry in Alberta, I'm thinking like the oil sands, we're still a high-cost 
producer. Right. So if you're taking back to the econ- economics of it at, right, its, at you, its base, if you're taking 10 or 20% out of the demand of oil globally, where's that demand going to first come off the, the higher costs sources, of course, right. yeah, just goes back to the basic economics of the situation. Right. And I mean, the forecasts and EVs, um, range, I'm actually, I've, I've, I've tef- test drove a number of EVs. Uh, I'm looking at buying an EV. Okay, I was going to ask if you were an owner. <laughs> I was going to ask that. Um, I mean, it's it's. I don't know if you've ever driven a, an electric vehicle like a Tesla. I, I've had the opportunity. My neighbor, who we who we share, who I'm right. going to have on the show, Mr. Ed Ma, he has two Teslas, and yeah. I've taken a ride in his Roadster, and it was it was a very unique experience. As an old gearhead growing up, loving yep. that that world of an internal combustion engine, it was a different experience. It was it was great. Like I have nothing but positives about it. The experience is great. Um, when you look at maintenance, I mean, you've got less than ten moving parts versus thousands in a yes in a ICE vehicle or a internal combustion engine vehicle um yeah and eventually i think the costs are going to come down below where they are for ice vehicles as well uh, i saw a report from volkswagen that's that say once they get up to a certain uh, number of vehicles sold uh, they expect it to be 30 percent less expensive for them to produce oh interesting EVs. i hadn't heard that because of course now you always see it's your more it's your wealthy friend who has the who has the electric vehicle yeah. or has the tesla that he paid a hundred thousand it's considered a luxury item and you mm-hmm. see it driving around town who's driving it that's interesting a 30 percent less i hadn't heard that yeah yeah that makes it very real for people and then the serviceability of that unit in terms of distance and all the all the think some of the fears that we have like i'm like what if i go to banff to go skiing what happens when i come back is mm-hmm. my battery dead I know I've talked to some people, there's still a lot of unknown, but that will, that will regulate itself out. It's going to work itself out. As it does. Yeah. I mean, fast chargers now, you can charge them in 15 minutes and that's going to continue to come down as the technology improves. Um, Is the rate of, of the improvement in technology in the renewables, is it just, is it hockey sticking? Like, was it kind of flat and then is it growing? Like, are we going to see a big shift? There's always seems to be a critical mass, that tipping point. I think it's Moore's law. As everything just keeps cycling on itself and gets faster and faster. Is that, are you seeing that happening or has it already been happening up to now? So we saw the hockey stick in the last 10 years. I'm speaking about wind. Um, okay, specifically. I think that's tapered off a little bit, at least for onshore wind, for a couple of reasons. And most of them just have to do with the actual size of these machines now. Okay. So this is what's really brought down the price of, of wind power is um, the, the size of the turbines, the length of the blades are getting to a point where now the turbines we're looking at for our next project are going to be 200 meters from base to blade tip, which is taller than the Calgary Tower. Yes. If you can imagine that. And one of the big constraints is actually getting those components into a site. Because yeah, that's a cannot, significant, just sheer mass. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you can imagine a 60 or 70 meter long blade, you're going to be taking out street signs if you're turning a corner or trying to, you know, go through a rural... I was somewhere area. at a level crossing in, I think, rural Ontario, maybe last summer, two summers ago, and a train went by loaded with blades. Right. And it was impressive. Like, yeah. But they were substantial. Like, they were on their side, stacked, I think, four per car, I think I was. But even like that, they looked huge. Right. <laughs> and yeah. there were only half a blade at a time. <laughs> so now you can produce, uh, you know, three or four megawatts from one turbine site, whereas in the past, a turbine was maybe one, one and a half megawatts. So you're saving a lot of money on, on construction costs. You're having to build that many fewer roads, um, okay. bases, uh, interconnection and so forth. So a lot of your, uh, auxiliary services for these 
So when you say three or four megawatts, can you put that into a context? I, I don't know what that means, to be blind. Like, how could I make that real for, for, our, for our listeners? So for wind, you, the conversion, you can probably estimate about three to 350 homes per megawatt. So okay. Whatever. And this is per year? Per year. Per year. Okay. Now, of course, wind is intermittent, so you yes. can actually run a, a, a community just back to, on Back wind. to it has to be part of a system. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So do you see an integrated between solar and wind? Is that a common, like, are those common bedfellows, if you will? <laughs> well, solar and wind work great together, especially in Alberta. Alberta, by the way, has some of the best solar resources in North America. Okay. Um, which most people don't realize. Um, uh, we get about 300 days of sunlight in Alberta. So there's a number of solar projects. We're looking at uh, some solar projects as well. And as I think we mentioned before the podcast, uh, you know, I think the cost of solar is eventually going to leapfrog over wind as far as... You mentioned that. Yeah. I have, I bought a home, again, uh, my neighbor... Uh, he was part of the project, but I have a home that's heated by solar. Okay. Yeah. So I use the glycol and I, like, yeah. I wouldn't have built it because I wouldn't have understood it. But now that I've had it, I wouldn't buy anything different. It's amazing. In the depth of winter, it'll be sunny out yeah. and my utility bill is a couple hundred bucks on a, on a large house. It's, it's amazing. But, I, but the unknown would have probably kept me from doing it. But now that I've been exposed to it and I've had no issues, I've been in the house seven, eight years, no problems. Mm-hmm. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't hesitate to do it again and encourage anyone to do it. The savings has been substantial and it just, just something about it feels good. <laughs> Yeah. But with, like, getting back to the wind and solar, I think they work per- perfect together in Alberta because generally in Alberta, wind power produces more at night, whereas obviously solar produces more at the day. So you get that leveling effect um, between In- solar interesting. and wind. Yeah. And do we have the technology now? And I know that, you know, again, my neighbor using Ed again as a reference has the, uh, the, the Tesla batteries. And so are we at a point where we can store? Because that's always the challenge, right? I need the power now. I might not need it later, but how do we store it? And that's like, if I look at the whole cycle, what's the technology around that? Or do we have that ability to store up all that power from the day and then distribute it when it's not windy or when the sun's not out? The technology is definitely there. It's a matter of cost. Okay. Still a cost barrier. And one of the other big issues with storage is that like a lithium ion storage system, you can store the energy for, you know, hours, days. But when you get a a week like we had last week where we had, you know, peak demand for electricity and there was no wind and, you know, minimal solar because of the time of the year... Um, that becomes a challenge because it's really those, you know, two, three, one week peaks in the system that is challenging for renewables and storage. So I'm of the view that we still need natural gas production, um, you know, nuclear, hydro, some of the other forms of electricity generation to kind of transition us from where we are now to a point where we do have that long-term storage. And there is technology out there that can do that, um, you know, like power to gas, so converting power through electrolysis of water into hydrogen, which can mm-hmm. be stored for a long-term and then... Longer period. Yeah. Again, this is all, it feels like it's at the end of the day, there's a philosophy behind it, but the technology play is the biggest is the biggest deciding factor. What's accessible, where's the technology at, and where's the cost? Mm-hmm. The te- I, I would argue the technology technology is there it's okay it's the cost that okay that's the issue okay the, yeah. cor- the correlation between the two and because at the end of the day it still comes down to the almighty dollar right of what it's going to cost me you said something that you said a word that i think sometimes can be perceived as a dirty word you said the word nuclear mm-hmm. what are your views on what are your views on nuclear and it, it Again, I, we shared offline. I recently watched the Chernobyl. Uh, if you haven't watched it, I highly recommend it on Crave about the accident that happened at Chernobyl and mm-hmm. even what happened in Japan. And I think there's a lot of fear around nuclear. But at the, again, I is that is nuclear part of the mix going forward, or is that getting phased out because of some of the safety concerns around it? 
personally, I think it has to be if we want to get serious about reducing our carbon footprint globally. Because as I just mentioned, we need we still need that baseload electricity yes. generation. Now, nuclear is not going to work in, in every jurisdiction. Uh, you wouldn't want to put a nuclear plant where you have the risk of natural disasters. I was going to say probably not in a heavy earthquake region. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For example. But the other point we have to remember is that all the nuclear plants that have been built have been built with 1960s, 1970s technology. I, right. I, I said, you know, it's built with slide ruler technology. The old-fashioned way, literally. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's new next generation, second, third, fourth generation nuclear power plants that are on the drawing board um, that don't have the risk of meltdown. So if you can put those in locations that don't have a risk of any kind of right. natural catastrophe, uh, I think it has to be part of the energy mix. Now, of course you know, per- permitting one of these nuclear plants and getting through the public consultation process. It seems like it would be problematic. <laughs> yes, very. Yeah. But I like what you said, and I think I really take it to heart, is that we have to look at our energy needs in a very broad perspective. This isolation of like this versus that. It feels like it is always an against. If mm-hmm. you do this, you're against that. You and I talked about, I think even our first phone call, if you vote this way, that means you're against the environment. But if you vote this way, that means you're against oil and gas. And that, I think it... It doesn't lead to a to a, I think a holistic approach to energy, which is what I'm hearing you talk about. Is that am I interpreting that correctly? Not to put not to put words in your mouth. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, and I think in Calgary we sometimes have some blinders on. We when we talk about energy, we talk about just oil and gas. And well, it's, you, it's what we know. So well, you, it's you, what we know. Absolutely. But when you go to anywhere else in the world, energy means a whole lot of things, not just oil and gas. It's hydro, nuclear, renewables natural gas production. Everything's on yep. the table and it's part of the conversation. Also because those jurisdictions sometimes they've had to because of cost or because of access. Here it's just been it's been I'm going to say quote unquote it's been easy. Mm-hmm. It's been what we it's been what we did. Yeah. So when you think about back to the conversation around economic transformation in Calgary, we're going through change. Obviously that was really driven heavily by the change in the oil market mm-hmm. and access and price which I think which are obviously joined together. So when you think of economic transformation in Calgary from your perspective as someone who's been heavily involved in the renewable space for, you know, 15 16 years what, what does the translation word? What is that? It's, it's also a bit of a buzzword. So, what does that word mean to you when you look at the next five to twenty years in Calgary and and the the transformation path that we have no choice but to be on right now? Well, I think when we talk about transformation, there's a real fundamental change I feel going on in the energy industry, and we're in the middle of it right now. So it may seem like it's moving pretty slow, but I think if we were to look back on it, you know, a hundred years in the future we would say, wow, you know, this is a real time when there was a tipping point in right. how we produce an electron or how we, you know, tra- transport um, uh, goods. Um, and I think in Calgary, in the oil and gas sector, um, there's, I would say, certainly two major threats that I see. One is climate change and the whole conversation around climate change. And the second, as we talked about, is electrification. Um, yes, you know, 40% or 40 or 50% of oil and gas or oil goes towards um, transportation industry um, for transportation fuels. Yes. And if you even take a, you know, a, a small, you know, let's say 10 or 20% out of that mix, um, that's going to affect global demand. And right. one of the issues in, in Alberta with the oil sands is we're one of the highest cost producers. 
Yeah, so, back, back to what you said yeah. before the, the the money the money equation. Yeah. When you talk about adoption rates for you know the electrification of EVs, electric vehicles, where are we at there? It feels like the technology's been taken off a little bit, but it feels like adoption is still pretty slow. And I know that you start talking on twenty thirty years. What do we see over the next five years? Are we going to go to a parking lot and now a third of those those spots right at the door are reserved for electric vehicles? Like, what do you see in terms of adoption rate day to day? Like, for I walk down the, to the grocery store and I see more electric vehicles than not mm-hmm. well up until recently we've only really had call it two choices the nissan leaf or the tesla yes you're right and i've kept my eye pretty close on um other car manufacturers and all of them are coming out with broad suites of of electrical vehicles in the next five years and in fact uh i don't know of one car manufacturer that's spending any more R&D money on their internal combustion en- engines. That, if you go back to following the money and seeing where the investment's being made, that tells, yeah. that tells a powerful tale. Yeah. So I think once there's more selection, you know, you'll see costs coming down. Uh, just speaking personally, you know, I haven't pulled the trigger on an electric vehicle because I know that there's going to be uh, you know, many more to choose from. There's a in, wave coming. Uh, in the and this is, you look at years. you look at Tesla, and I think Tesla is a household name. Everybody knows about yeah. it. Still perceived, I would say, in my mind, a little bit as a premium product. Yeah. The crisis there, and it's positioned itself that way. All of a sudden, I'll be biased a little bit because we do a lot of work with Honda and their motorcycle side. But Honda comes to market with an electric vehicle. You've got now the brand recognition, the trust factor. Like you know, that thing is going to be mm-hmm. engineered to perfection because that's who they are. It's going to be really interesting how the mainstream is going to go. Oh well, if Honda's making it, it's got to be good, or 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 Chrysler, or whoever it could yeah. be. I'm just I'm just giving Honda the credit because when once they come to market with something, they have put the time in to know that in their in their view, it's the best potential, the best possible engineering product they can put out. To me, that's going to change the game really quickly. There's no barrier anymore. I'm comfortable now. <laughs> and I saw an interesting graph once on the adoption rate of technologies. So you had you know things like the washing machine and the television and the telephone and those adoption rates were fairly slow, but as we moved forward in time and looked at things like the PC, the fax machine, the cell phone, the smartphone, those adoption rates are always increasing in... The cycle in terms of the speed in which we adopt. Yeah, the speed, yeah, the yeah. speed of adoption. Um, and I think there, there's a case to be made that the same may happen with the electric vehicle. Well, I'd certainly a lot of people, anyone I know who is a believer and a supporter, that's exactly the story you're hearing from anybody. Like, just wait, like kind of almost like don't be where the puck is, look where the puck's going. That's mm-hmm. where the puck's going. I had that conversation the other day. I think it was with Ed at Christmas actually yeah. about, you know, wait till the, and he even said that you start looking at, you know, he used Honda as a reverence, the Honda of the world. Once they start getting into the game, that's when you're going to see mm-hmm. a big wave of, of, of change. And that causes a cascading level of impact. Like you said, right back to the oil and gas sector yeah and one of the other things that's not talked about a lot is when there's a household that has an ice vehicle so an internal combustion vehicle and an electric vehicle there are many more miles put on that electric vehicle than the gasoline power that's interesting so whenever you look at these adoption rate um, reports they always talk about number of vehicles but they never really talk about the number of miles driven which obviously has a major effect on demand back to usage yeah that's interesting well, all of a sudden you get that quick identification of like, I don't have to go to the gas station. This isn't costing me money. It doesn't break down. Right. Those are things that change behavior slowly and then, all, and then all of a sudden. Right. I think it's four to seven times cheaper depending on where you are to per, like dollars per mile to operate an electric vehicle. Four to seven times. That's the, yep. yeah. See, there's a number you can get. You hear four megawatts. I don't know what that means. Yep. I hear four to seven times cheaper. I can get my head wrapped around that. Yeah. I mean, obviously you still have to power it um, yes. by plugging in at home, but um, yeah, dollars per mile driven, it's 
Yeah, if you look at total total cost of ownership and the maintenance yeah. of a traditional vehicle and those kind of things, because really all you're really coming down to is maybe you have to change a couple of windshield wiper blades or maybe tires, but otherwise. Yeah, with the Tesla, I don't think there's any maintenance required for the first 40,000 kilometers is what I was told. And that's really just a check, like a checkup. Yes. Well, you're, dri- you're driving a piece of technology now, not necessarily a mechanical vehicle in the same yeah. sense of before. Like you said, six moving parts versus 10,000 moving parts. And you knew this when you test when you drove uh, Ed's um, Tesla there, is that the driving experience is completely different. Like it's, there's no hesitation. You almost, I like to say, you almost become one with the vehicle. It's for someone who was a bit of a, you know, grow up with motorcycles and yeah. drag racing and all that stuff. When you put the, when you put the pedal down on, on a Tesla, it is a very real experience. Yeah. If you, if that's what you're after, there's nothing like that. Mm-hmm. It is a breakneck experience. Yeah. It's almost more like a fighter jet than it is like a, like a, like a vehicle that I've driven before. Yeah, exactly. We could spend a whole episode just talking about <laughs> electric vehicles. But, but getting back to the oil and gas sector. Yes. So, I mean, that's, that's one of the major risks that I see out, you know, probability of adoption rates being extremely fast you know, it's probably not hundred percent, but there is, there is a probability there that adoption rates will be faster than what we expect. And I think the oil and gas sector in Alberta has to be ready for that. Um, and I mean, there's a number of ways they can do that. Um, you know, get into renewables, support renewables, invest in renewables and in a bigger way than they are now. I think when you look globally at the uh, oil and gas sector, I think it's only one or 2% of their capital spending is on renewables. Interesting. So time. Basically tr- trivial in the, yeah. in the big scope of things. But there are companies, uh, you look at Nesty out of, uh, I think they're out of Finland, Orsted, they've transitioned from oil and gas to partially or even entirely renewables. And they've, they've outperformed uh, the oil and gas sector. Interesting. So you're seeing, again, I love looking at this globally because there's, there's, there's examples of places and companies and countries that are doing this ahead of us. So we're looking to see that we're not the first ones to go through mm-hmm. this transition. You touched on some, well, return on investment as a financial guy at your, at, your, at your core. What about the investor side of it? You know, investors are starting to invest a lot more with their beliefs, not just with their mm-hmm. wallet. I know it's a combination, but the activist investor is a very real thing. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I was mentioning about the two threats, the one electrification, the second climate change. And when I say climate change, I don't uh, necessarily okay. mean, you know, the actual risk of climate change, but it can be as simple as the perception of the risk. Uh, and, you know, what does that mean for, um, you know, people's opinions of the sector, uh, investors' opinions? Uh, so we're seeing that a lot of uh, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, especially out of Europe, uh, are no longer investing in the oil and gas sector. Uh, and I think Part of that is because they see these long-term risks to the industry. Uh, It's unfortunate that Canada sometimes uh, is unfairly targeted. Uh, I I don't agree with that. I I mean, I think that's a sore spot for many of us, especially in Western Canada. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we do, we are, our environmental stewardship uh, in in oil and gas is among the best in the world. Um, But uh, you know, I think, I think, the PR done uh, against Canada has been very efficient. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot Com- of- Compared to the industry, like the industry, yes. I don't think has done a very good job of defending Canada and Alberta. No, from a pure messaging and communication standpoint, yeah. they got kind of caught back on their heels. They hadn't had to, mm-hmm. but someone took that gap and said, oh, I'm going to insert a new narrative here. Yeah. And that narrative is not pro. It's, right. it's very negative. And there's a whole conspiracy. There's a lot of conversations could be had around that, yes. which we won't get into that today. Yeah. If you've listened to any of Vivian Krause's talks, you, yeah. there's a very, and she's got some very interesting, compelling research to show mm-hmm. that it wasn't by accident, that it was a concerted effort, which again, working in messaging and 
there isn't we do have the ability to influence we, we what, what people think it's it's out there and it's real and i behoove everyone to consume as much pieces of information as they can that doesn't always just say the same message right <laughs> for, go and read something they maybe don't agree with just to get another perspective but that's yeah. another podcast for <laughs> that's another podcast for another day something i do want to touch on and you and i talked on this in the phone call and i thought it was powerful how much do you wrestle with or do you encounter this alignment that tends to sometimes be if i vote right i'm voting pro oil and gas and I'm voting against renewables if I vote the other way like just because I voted this way doesn't mean I'm against this or but if I vote that way I'm against that I find they get lumped together very quickly maybe in western Canada more so is that is that something that like, is that getting in our way what are your views on that I'm sure you deal with it every day yeah well like like I mentioned you know I think traditionally the renewable sector was kind of seen as a left-wing industry yes um, and Alberta generally is you know right-leaning yeah I guess you, you could you could probably say. Um, 40 years of a conservative government would let us think that, but the yeah. last few years, I think things have been become a little bit more up for grabs. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, yeah, so I, I get that a lot, um, and I think that's a lot of the pushback that I'm seeing, especially you know when I just talk to the, the, the common person on the street or yeah, when I absolutely. talk to landowners. Um, and yeah, I think there's a, a misperception out there about our industry um, that you know, we're kind of playing with tinker toys. These aren't real projects. And Interesting. It's, it's still kind of in the R&D stage, and that's certainly not the case. In fact, okay. renewable energy um, over the last couple of years has had the highest, uh, has had the, had the highest investment um, when it comes to energy um, in North America. Oh, interesting. Again, yeah. going back to the money and seeing where people are actually investing yeah. with their beliefs. Yeah. So there still is that it gets minimized, is treated as just like, oh, just a little pet project versus actually something that's substantial. That's right, yeah. yeah. And is that a Western Canadian phenomenon or a Canadian phenomenon? I would say it's more prevalent in Western Canada. Okay. Uh, I think... I think the East is a little bit more open to uh, renewable energy, but yeah. Well, certainly the conversation around oil and gas is not the same. Again, we chatted earlier, yeah. growing up in Montreal, nobody talked about oil and gas in, in that area where I grew up in rural Quebec like it's talked about here. Right. You know, because in rural Alberta, you have an oil well on your farm. In rural Quebec, it's just the price of gas. That's yeah. all anyone ever talks about, or natural, or propane, or whatever, whatever it is. It's a very different dialogue, and I think the renewable conversation got traction in Eastern Canada long before it was it, it got here from my observation yeah. just living in both parts of the country i think the other thing too is um we're seen as being aligned with the whole climate change argument and that argument is a threat to the oil and gas sector so i think when yes. people think about renewable energy uh they think about okay you're only here because of the perceived threat of climate change which is in opposition to our bread and butter which is the oil and gas sector yes. therefore i must be against you because um you know, you're affiliated. The friend of my enemy is also my enemy. That's right. Yes. What's your response to that? Is that misplaced? Is that, is there some truth to that? Or do you think that that's a thing, you know, one of the questions I'm going to ask is, you know, what are we not, what are we doing that's maybe holding us back? Is that a belief that's holding us back in, in, in Alberta or Calgary for that matter? I, th- I think it is. Um, although I think that's, I think that's thawing a little bit. Um, okay. I like the term thawing. <laughs> Um, because you are seeing oil and gas companies, even Alberta-based oil and gas companies, getting into renewables, like Suncor, for instance. They have yes. a number of projects. Uh, they're they're developing a, a very large wind farm in southern Alberta. Um, so, I, you know, I think at a certain level, that's that's changing. Um, but when you still talk to the average person on the street about renewable energy, um, especially 
people say 40 years old or older. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, there's the perception that it's, uh, it's, it's not yet real. I think the un- younger generation is a completely different story. I was just going to ask that when we talk about demographics and, you know, the sub 40, over 40, or I'm 25. And in my mind, it's like, well, why aren't we already doing this now? I have my niece and nephew. They, they like to have a conversation with them about it. Like, it's like, we're not even talking about the same thing. Like, it's right. very different. Yeah. I consider myself open-minded. They're not open-minded in the other direction. They're like, well, no, this is the future. We're doing this. It's, it's done. Yeah. It's an interesting conversation. And again, that's another potential threat to the industry is that you've got the new generation coming up that is not necessarily in support of oil and gas. Um, yes. That, that, and, may, and again, informed or misinformed, yeah. if that's what you believe, that's what you believe. Yeah. I, and I, you know, myself, I mean, I, you know, when it comes to climate change, I, you know, I, I've looked at the reports and I, I can make really obviously um, make the argument both ways. But, um, you know, again, looking at the probability of cl- catastrophic climate change happening, um, you know, the number you hear out there is 97% of scientists believe, you know, climate change is real and it will have real effects on, on the world. Um, I mean, even if it's 80% or 70%, uh, so if you, if you were going to bet on it, your odds of success are high. That's right. And, and the chances of it being catastrophic over the next 50 years, it's not zero and it's not a hundred percent. And, you know, another thread that I see is, you know, if we start seeing more of these, uh, climate catastrophes or natural disasters, you know, like the wildfires I was happening say, in Australia. We're all, we're all or, a friend of mine is a water bomber pilot. He just yep. left last night to fly to Australia to go do seven weeks in fighting fires over there because half his crew from BC that takes the winter off are all over there right, right. now. And he's he's been informing me about it, so I've been getting the perspective from the guys on the ground. Like it's a nasty, it's very real what's going on over there. So so if you're see if if we see that more and more happening around the world. Whether or not it should be necessarily blamed on climate change, it will be. Because, yes. in my opinion, the train's already left the station. And if we're seeing that accelerate over the next, call it 50 years, how is society going to react to the industry that's perceived as causing these problems? It's, that's a not a good paradigm. That's right. For being, for being in that industry. And I, I'm not saying this is necessarily going to happen, but the probability of it happening is not zero. Yes. No, we're, we're prophesizing a little bit at this right. point, and that's part of the podcast is <laughs> yeah. just because these concepts are, again, it's perception and giving people different ways to think about things. And if you know change is coming, you can sit back and wait for it to happen to you. You can get out ahead of it. I think that's what we're talking about. Right. This is a, The whole point of this podcast is a proactive approach. Yeah. And the first thing about being proactive to me is learning. <laughs> if you don't inform yourself and you don't look at multiple perspectives, we can get very much in our own little echo chamber. Mm-hmm. Of, yeah. of what's going on. So when you see things in Alberta, we talked about a little bit that might, like, what are we doing well? Like, is it less, like, I don't want to be, this is not a doom and gloom <laughs> podcast by any sense. When you're out there, like, are you seeing more curiosity? Are people wanting to learn more? Like, what have we, the last five years has been very real. You know, I heard from someone the other day that, you know, really we've only been focusing on change for the last two years because the last three years, we just, ho- the first three years, we just thought, hoped oil and gas would come back. Yeah. It was just another one of those downturns that we've all lived through. Or people that have been here for a while, they'll recount the different generations of downfalls, uh, downturns they had. But so in the last two years, have you seen shifts? Have you seen an appetite in Calgary specifically to be more open to alternative thinking? So in the last three years under the former NDP government, they had the climate leadership plan and the renewable energy program, which, uh, really accelerated the industry in the province. So we saw a lot of investment, a lot of interest from international players coming in. And they ran three um, 
RFPs, so requests for proposals, um, that ultimately resulted in a number of contracts being signed. Um, now that that whole plan and renewable energy program was cancelled, um, unfortunately. But what we're still doing right in Alberta is it's a deregulated market. Um, so we can sell now power into the market without having to wait for, say, a, a large government-run utility to let us either sell power to them or sell power to, to the grid. Um, so it's, I mean, it's very, it lends itself to entrepreneurial thinking. To innovation and to change. That's right. Some of those initial barriers are, are, are not there. That's right. So we can okay, sell that's power a, That's a positive way. That's an yeah. interesting, yeah, I never thought of it that way. We can also sell power directly to corporations. So um, corporate PPAs, which is, as we talked about, is becoming very popular in the U.S. Uh, it, it is coming up to Canada um, because I think the government power purchase agreements we use a lot of acronyms. That's in okay. The industry. So PPA's power purchase agreement. Thank you. And this is an acronym-driven town where we live in with engineers and accountants. Um, uh, it, it's becoming more prevalent uh, across the globe because uh, the government PPAs are starting to taper off. Oh, I see. That's interesting. I just not something I had, it wasn't on my radar yeah. about corporations moving that and kind of hedging out and being able to lock in your cost for a twenty-year period when you specifically deal with renewables in that setting that's very that's very compelling i like the business the business case there's pretty easy to understand so here's the business case so in in alberta um market prices uh wholesale market prices for power range right now range between 50 and 60 dollars a megawatt hour in this renewable energy program that i talked about the bids that came in and were awarded a contract came in sub 40 dollars a megawatt hour um so the case right now is that you can contract with uh you know, wind or solar facility um, to lock your power in to below where the market is now. And on top of that, you also get access to what we call the RECs or the renewable energy credits, which can be used to okay. offset your carbon. So if you're a large uh, industrial um, consumer of electricity that produces GHG emissions, um, you can also purchase this credit, which you can then use to offset the GHG emissions. Okay. And there's another thing we're doing well in Alberta is that we actually have a regime in place. In fact, it was just put in place at the beginning of the year called the tier system, um, whereby large final emitters, so anyone who emits more than 100,000 mm -hmm. tons of CO2 a year, can buy these offsets from the renewable energy industry, or they have to pay into a, a fund, which is used okay. for R and D. I've heard a little bit about. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't really know how it worked. So as simple as that. It's, it's a credit system. Mm -hmm. It's a credit system. Yeah, yeah. Which facilitates because it moves funds around and it actually gets everybody kind of working together a little bit. Right. So, so a corporate in Alberta could essentially lock your price into lower than it is now in the market, and get your credits for free if you want to look at it that way. Interesting. Yeah. And in a, in a, in a price-depressed uh, world, how you can move your costs out of the bottom is how you make it. You know, there's the, I heard years ago someone retail told me, hey, the, the profit's not in the selling, it's in the buying. You've mm -hmm. got to get the price low enough because the market will only sustain selling X product for so much. But yeah. if we can get our prices down because of X, Y, Z, that's how we can increase our margin. It was just something that always stuck with me because it was, again, so, yeah. so simple from that, from that perspective. So now getting back, you know, getting back to uh, the price of renewables, it's, it's come down, when you look at wind, it's come down about uh, two-thirds in the last 10 years. And solar's significant come, over a 10-year period of time. Yeah. And solar's come down 90% in the last 10 years, as far as price. 90%. Yeah. So 10, 15 years ago, solar was, you know, up around $800 a megawatt hour. And now it's, you know, down to, 
you know, 60. And in fact, there was a... So basically getting into, like you said, comparative levels. That's right. Yeah. To, to, tradi- to quote unquote traditional energy yeah. production. And solar was really driven by a scale of economies. So, uh, you know, China in a big way um, built and, uh, you know, manufactured solar panels. And, that, mm-hmm. and whenever China does something, it always brings the cost down, right? Because they yes. have the scale to do, you know, large scale manufacturing. Uh, so that's where we saw the big price declines in solar. There's also interesting technologies, like there's bifacial solar, so actually have um, you know, panels on both sides, so it gets some reflection off of the ground, so you get some efficiency that oh, way interesting. and so forth. Yeah. Back to the efficiency of like, we're learning. Yeah. We're learning all the time. How do, we, how do we get as much out of this situation? Something you didn't mention at all or we haven't talked about is geothermal. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that and how that's considered? And I had someone, I had Todd Hirsch on yesterday and he chatted about like, if you look for a moonshot, where could something like geothermal fit in Alberta where we've got a whole bunch of qualified people at drilling really deep holes in the ground really mm-hmm. effectively with something like geothermal that at first blush does not appear as would make sense in this environment. But how do we take what we're good at? So I'm just delving together a couple different conversations yeah. and he, he just brought it on my radar a little more than it had been. I've heard about it. It sounds interesting, but that was kind of where my knowledge stopped. In theory, geothermal is almost the perfect renewable energy because obviously it's renewable. You're extracting heat from the ground. Um, it's base load, so it's not doesn't have this intermittency problem that you have with wind and solar. It's constant. It's there. It's more like a ga- natural gas-fired facility. Um, I mean, one of the issues with geothermal, and I know a little bit about it because the, my former uh, company that I was with had done some geothermal. Okay. And... Um, the issues is it's almost like drilling for oil and gas. I mean, you're drilling expensive holes in the ground to yes. look for these um, thermal anomalies. And uh, so, I mean, you can drill, I guess, a dry hole <laughs> or, a, yes. or a, uh, a cold hole, I guess yes. you could call it. <laughs> yeah, I've not heard that term, but yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> um, and then actually building the facility is, is quite complicated. You're using, uh, you know, chemicals that are corrosive so i mean it's there's quite a lot of maintenance that goes into these facilities so So, the the cost uh, argument isn't quite there compared to uh, say wind and solar and you can't build these things anywhere either yes Um, they're very site specific Okay. Yeah, he brought it up as an interesting concept, just something I had I had not explored. But places like Iceland, where you have uh, heat very close to the surface, it makes perfect sense. Yes. Um, the difference with a place like Iceland, though, is that power prices are very high, so it can sustain those costs. So it balances up back out to the price equation. If this yeah. costs this, and I can come in just a hair below, which might yeah. not work in another environment, but because we have excess, yeah, where, where you are in situational uh, opportunities, yeah. like you said about Alberta being solar and wind, and yeah. how that balance actually could complete almost, can complete almost a, a, a full picture. Yeah. yeah. You need natural gas, obviously, to fill in the gaps. And I mean, fortunately for ratepayers, Gas is super cheap. So, yes. I mean, power prices that we pay in Alberta and, you know, even North America generally is a lot lower than you find in a lot of other places. We I do. Think. We are fortunate that yeah. way because of, back to it. Because of and I, th- I think that's hampered our industry a little bit, <clears throat> at least traditionally. Okay. There's always a balance. Yeah. So when you look at, when you think about, when you look at the future, and obviously this is an industry that you're in, is there any, is there key indicators that you look for? Like kind of that, I always like to say, if we're going to build our dashboard to say, hey, we're moving in the right direction. If we're moving in the right direction with renewables in Western Canada, or even, you know, think North American or Canadian, what are some of the indicators you look, you, you look for? Is it number of projects? Is it number of energy produced? Like what's on your dashboard? Well, so the industry always looks at megawatts installed. Okay. So in megawatts Alberta, installed. Right. Okay. So in Alberta, 
when it comes to the wind, uh, we're at about 1400 megawatts, moving very quickly to about 2700 megawatts installed because of the projects that were awarded contracts through this renewable energy okay. program. So basically almost double. That's right. Yeah. Which, which is good. I mean, over the course of three years, that's why it was such a successful program and why it was, you know, such a kick in the gut, I think for the industry when that was canceled, although it was forecast to be canceled because of the new government coming yes. in. Um, Back to the change of the political landscape right. and how we have such short cycles to create long-term change yeah. when you're just going to have to get elected again. Right. Yeah. Uh, which doesn't make sense to me because you know, again, these prices are so low that it, it's a great benefit to the ratepayer, And I think that's one thing that our industry, the renewable energy industry, hasn't done a good job of, of promoting is these contracts or even renewable energy in general is so much cheaper than the wholesale price right now that these contracts in particular are actually making money for the government. So the way that the way these contracts were set up is they work within the market mechanism. So uh, a wind power producer will sell power into the market. And um, if the price is above what they contracted, then the, uh, the generator has to pay into the government. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So kind of no risk. That's right. They kind of bake the risk out of the situation. Right. And if the wholesale price is below, then the government will cover the, the, the difference there. Okay, got it. Um, but because prices have been above basically since these contracts were signed, um, these contracts are actually making money for the government and providing the ratepayer with low cost. But yet, energy. they still pulled the initiative based on, based on a uh, lot of things. Politics. I yes, think, I was going to say that's hard for us to comment from the outside. Yeah. So often, I mean, it's, it's, it was an NDP led initiative. Well, the UCP was basically opposed to anything that was NDP led, of course, yeah. which is a little bit of the challenge of the roller coaster. Not to turn this into a political conversation, mm-hmm. but you know, as the, the it goes up, it goes down; it goes left, it goes right, yeah. <laughs> literally. So, uh, megawatts hours installed on your dashboard. Anything else that you'd look for in terms of like, hey, like we're on the right path here? Like this is a good direction or leading indicators, even. Hmm. Well, I think the price of power uh, is is an indicator that we look at um, both the price of producing electricity from renewable energy, as well as what the wholesale price is in Alberta, and the price of what we can contract with, uh, with say, corporates or end users. Right. Um, I mean, there's really no leading indicator on where the industry is going. Okay. I mean, to be frank, it's, it's, a, it's a slow-moving industry um, when you look at you know, the permitting timelines. And in fact, the time to build the project is probably the quickest when you look at the the development cycle of renewable Interesting energy. Interesting versus all the hoops and loops that you have to jump through to actually make something happen. Right. So uh, renewable energy, like a wind project, um, best case scenario, you can probably get one from start to finish in five years. The permitting okay. cycle itself can take three years. Interesting. Yeah. So if we were going to move some things aside, uh, streamlining that part of the process sounds like that would make one of the biggest impacts. Yeah, and that's uh, one thing that's actually happening right now is the Alberta Utilities Commission, which Mm -hmm. regulates our industry is looking at uh, streamlining their process uh, through this red tape Okay, so there is some positive, okay. Oh yeah, there's a lot of positives, for sure, in, in Alberta. Um, so streamlining the uh, <clears throat> the permitting process, um, you know, Trish, in the past it's been quite frustrating, so I'm, I'm hopeful that this will, will yes. help. Um, one thing I did want to mention, uh, 
getting back to your question about what we're doing right is, uh, you know, we have a number of educational institutions in Alberta that uh, are beginning to look at renewables as uh, part of their curriculum. Okay, please call call some out. He's like, let's yeah. let's talk about it. Yeah. yeah so there's the University of Calgary has a master's program in sustainable energy. Um, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about these programs, yeah. but I have. But you know that they're available. They're, they're available. Uh, Mount Royal College also has a program. Uh, one that I know a little bit more about is in Lethbridge College. They actually have a wind power technicians course. So the guys that actually go out and maintain these things. Well, Lethbridge knows about wind. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's uh, yeah, there's probably about five or six hundred turbines in southern Alberta. Yes, that the, need yeah. to be maintained. Yeah, you spend much time down the Pincher Creek area. You know what wind is all about. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, well, actually, Pincher Creek. Because that area is one of the best wind resources in all of North America. Oh, really? I, yeah. I knew I knew, certainly knew in Alberta it was, but even from yeah. a North American perspective, yeah, you've got you've got those mountain passes that basically funnel the wind, the, the wind into that basically corridor. create a wind tunnel, a wind tunnel effect, more or less. Yeah, so that's where wind power really got its start in Canada was. Uh, in the Pincher Creek area. So back to things that we're good at, you know, the oil and gas industry would arguably got it started in the West. There's so many things that we have going for us in terms of being that we've been involved in that for a period of time, even though it's still a new industry. Like you said, it got its start from a North American Canadian perspective right yeah. there in our, in our backyard or maybe our front yard, depending on, where you, depending on how you play it. Yeah. Well, again, when you talk about energy in Alberta, uh, you got oil and gas, but we have some of the best Renewable energy resources as well. Wind, as I mentioned, the solar, yes. the 300 days of sunlight, you know, as good as Florida. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we have to take advantage of all these opportunities that we have. And I think this is an important part of this conversation for anyone listening. It's just broadening and starting to, when you hear the word energy, not to just immediately jump to the easy one, which is mm-hmm. the oil and gas, but start looking at it. And that's certainly my approach is that the world needs more energy, you know, and I think that even Canada, from a perspective, we get the short end of a stick that I don't think is justified. I think that when even our oil and gas sector, we do an incredibly positive job of doing it, yeah. quote unquote, the right way. But let's not limit ourselves. And when you were looking at economic transformation, you need to get everybody on the field, mm-hmm. <laughs> like get off the bench. And I think that was, for me, really excited when you reached out to knowing that this was an area that I didn't know as much about personally. So selfishly, I wanted to hear and learn and broaden the perspective and certainly give the listeners some hope that there's other things going on here that we've got a lot going for us. It's not just, you know, what is a negative oil and gas story right now? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think Alberta really has an opportunity to capture renewable energy and export our our fossil fuel products so you know i'm oh, that's I'm, an interesting dichotomy like yeah, yeah. S- sell that keep this <laughs> that's right because it's it's a finite resource um, yes i mean eventually it's going to run out globally yes uh, as they say so i mean if we can export this resource and capture some of the renewable energy to use domestically then i think that's i mean to me that's how the industry or how you know alberta should be moving I'm certainly not against pipelines. I'm full support of pipelines and export. Uh, well, you're a supporter of energy. I heard that. I heard that loud, yeah, loud and clear. Right, yeah. And yeah, it's the not, world, it's the world needs energy. Yes, yeah. absolutely, and that's yeah. not going down as the world, you know, no. globalizes and industrializes at all on all different levels in countries yeah. that are industrializing, going through their industrial revolutions now. Mm-hmm. Their need, and they don't want to be held back. They want the same opportunities that we've had or other parts of the world have had over the years. Yeah. So, if someone's they're listening today, they're compelled. They're they're they want to learn more. Is there any resources you would recommend people to reach out? Places where they can go learn more? Websites, places you go to for access? Like, how do I how do I learn more about? non-oil and gas related energy? Well, our industry has uh, uh, the Canadian 
Canwea Canadian Association of Wind Energy um, has a website that you can okay. go to, and they have some pretty good information on there. Uh, AWEA, which is the American equivalent, has some very good resources um, when it just comes to the wind energy um, industry in general. And then the uh, solar industry has similar associations. So they have websites where they have, you know, what is solar, what are the advantages. Right, from so, the basic, yeah. I want to learn more. So, I want, I yeah, want to Solar understand. Wind 101, that would probably be a good place to start. Um, I mean, there's a lot of resources on a lot of TED Talks on yes, renewable energy. There is. Yeah. I love a good. I love me a good TED Talk. Absolutely. And I, I love what you said. And I, I've heard that before. That we've got our academia in in Alberta that's leaning towards this. So if you're curious, and that younger generation who mm-hmm. wants to be involved in the energy sector but isn't necessarily as as geared towards oil and gas, and they might have been even 15 years ago, to hear that there's those programs out there because if there's if the demand increases, then the need for educated resources increases as well. It's 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 a cycle and if we're looking at jobs being one of the indicators in alberta of where we're at let's get more people and we don't have to import let's let's actually do a little bit of more homegrown that's right and as far as yourself is if someone wants to reach out and get in touch with you what's is there is there a preferred format linkedin email what do you recommend linkedin is great i've got a linkedin profile so you can get a hold of me there we've got a website albertawindenergy.com so perfect got the contact information there so if anyone wants to reach out i'm happy to speak about the industry everybody. Mark, I appreciate your passion and uh, your commitment to it. Clearly you've, you've kind of gone all in on this industry and you've been in it for an extended period of time. And again, really appreciate your candor today and willing to come in and, and chat about it, the goods and the bads, but to give, uh, give the audience a perspective. So thank you very much. Great. I loved it. Thanks, Tyler. 